Welcome everybody to 2021, a new year, another episode of Do You Know What? I am Leo, one of your hosts, and I introduce my other hosts. Thanks, Leo. I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. I'm the Chief Executive Officer for Liberal Judaism. And as usual, always delighted to be here on this podcast. And my other co-host for the uh, the duration of the journey and as long as we're in lockdown is... Hi everyone, my name is Rebecca Singerman-Knight. I am Deputy Chair of Kingston Liberal Synagogue, which is a lovely community in South West London. I do that on a voluntary basis um, and with the rest of my time I divide between a piano, my garden and two cats. So we are 10 days past the really important day of the year. Um, How did you celebrate uh, Rebecca Charlie's birthday? I celebrated it on my sofa um, with said cats. Um, And I made myself a roast chicken dinner and actually roasted potatoes as well in honour of Rabbi Charlie. And Charlie, how many of the three plus billion people in the world remembered it's your birthday and not Christmas? Quite a lot, surprisingly, Leo. You did a very effective job of turning social media from Christmas Day into Charlie Birthday Day, including a petition, which I was very, very pleased to see. Did we get enough uh, signatures to debate it in Parliament? No. Not yet. Not yet. It's a work in progress. Okay, we should be able to get there for the next birthday, though. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. I have every faith in Leo. Leo seems to be able to um, call into action troops from all around the world when it comes to social media. So I'm living in hope. I'm living in hope. When it comes to some social media aspects, particularly Twitter and Facebook, we've got some real experts with us today, much higher than I am. But we'll come on to our guest in a minute. Um, So, Charlie, how did the rest of your household deal with Christmas, etc.? How was it for them? It was quite strange to be honest it was the four of us for most of the day although in rota we walked around the block with various people who came to visit um all in the same tier i should add but it was strange i think even though it's been a strange period of time there was an added emphasis of quite how distant we are from people, not just because it was my birthday, but because, yes, it's Christmas Day. And I think it is a time when we are usually surrounded by, or many of us are surrounded by other people. But I then went to Limud and um, that was kind of quite amazing to see so many people then suddenly, although, albeit online. So it was a nice period, just slightly odd. And Rebecca, how was the festive period as they call it for you i was on my own for two weeks couldn't see the family um for obvious reasons i would actually like to introduce our guest this is a guest when we started putting this podcast together was really near the top of my list of people that I wanted to invite. Over this last year of lockdown, I've actually had the opportunity as well as meeting and dealing a lot with the two other co-hosts of this. I've had uh, the absolute pleasure to have to do some broadcasts and everything to Israel. And one of the people that I've met on that 
journey is Sarah Tuttle Singer from Times of Israel. Sarah, welcome. Well, thank you so much for thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here, and I love listening to you speak. And and twenty twenty one will be we'll, we'll change Christmas altogether, and we'll have we'll have another global holiday in uh, in honor of uh, of your birthday. <laughs> Brilliant. I know, I love it. I'm going to be like the queen with a a summer birthday. So some of those people out there who have been familiar with Sarah, who's in many, many Jewish worlds, would probably recognise that Sarah doesn't sound as bubbly as she normally does. Sarah, how are you feeling? Oh... Am I allowed to really speak the truth on this, or do I need to edit myself? Am you I don't are, are have we to censored? edit yourself. There's no swear, sweary words are allowed. They are allowed. Okay, I feel like shit. I feel like absolute garbage. Oh. Like a Mack truck hit me going at a thousand light years a minute, rolled me over. I um, I'm now day eight with COVID, and this is a mild case. I am so lucky compared to so many other people and it's still absolutely brutal. This is the first day in a while where I've been able to speak for more than a few minutes without completely running out of breath. So I know I sound a little fainter than usual, which for some may actually not be such a bad thing, but uh, I, I'm doing better today than I have been doing. So so sorry to hear that, Sarah. You said it was day eight. Was that day eight since you got the symptoms or since you got the... Uh... Today's day eight since I got the symptoms and I uh, was diagnosed on day four. Did you know straight away that it that it was or did you have a pretty strong feeling well i was feeling tired and when i went to drink my morning coffee and i realized that it it tasted like hot water and i was very very disappointed but the coffee should have tasted like you know freshly brewed rich hazelnut i thought okay that's it also my uh, my boyfriend came up to me and he said you stink and i said you stink he said no no i mean (laughs) you you smell like you haven't put deodorant on and i said no i smell fine there's nothing there he said no no you you really you you need to put deodorant on i said oh my god what the you know i can't if i can't smell myself and and he can apparently his whole family could as well and people were too polite to tell me Uh, i realized that my sense of smell was just completely gone and that was the key indicator that this was more than just a cold or a flu and then yeah. within a few days I felt just worse and worse and worse do you know where you do you know how you got it yes uh, I got it from a friend and she's um she's okay she's made a full recovery okay good because I don't know um Leah or Charlie I, I think I might say neither of you have had it I haven't uh, I, I haven't had it. I, I think it's a haven't had it yet. I think is probably the answer <laughs> to that point. Well, yeah, I mean, for the first time, I'm kind of actually sort of sort of nervous for myself. I mean, I've, I've been nervous for my parents, obviously, because they're over 70 and, you know, people I know who are clinically vulnerable. But up until very recently, I haven't been particularly nervous for myself. But then with this new strain, and, you know, I'm keeping an eye on the figures locally, and they're really high around here. You know, it's something that I'm becoming personally quite nervous about. I don't know if you if you guys feel differently as you than you did a few months ago, but I certainly do. So right at the beginning, if we think back to March time, I felt really vulnerable. I think because there was an I was surrounded by a lot of people who didn't seem to be taking it very seriously. Um, my partner was about to go off to the states, which I thought was bonkers at the time, and I just 
thought we were all going to get it and hospitals were going to be overrun and I was really convinced of it. And then that kind of evened out for me a little bit. And now it feels so intimate. It feels like, um, you know, six degrees of separation that you actually can't go more than a a pace without knowing somebody who's got it. And actually, uh, you know, just heard of a, uh, a death this evening of COVID. So it feels really close. It does feel really close. Yeah, I agree. And just for people who are listening, I think we should also say we were recording this literally an hour after Boris Johnson just announced the the latest national lockdown as well. So it's kind of very fresh in our minds as well. Are, are people mostly compliant in the UK with the lockdowns or is it something that folks are taking less seriously? Oh, that's such a good question. I think certainly at the beginning... Yeah, so certainly back in March, April, May, I would say that the vast majority of people were complying more so than they did in November, because I think the figures are quite scary now. And I think even people who were getting a bit blasé about it, I think, are now really feeling it. So my feeling is that compliance will improve, but... I don't know. What do you guys think? I think you've got a very good point there. I think because the November lockdown didn't result in anybody seeing much difference. Mm. And I think the problem with all of these things with this is that people always say, but wearing masks hasn't stopped it growing. And it's like you're missing the point wearing masks has stopped it growing by a lot bigger than it could have Mm -hmm. and that's the bit that you always 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 miss there's a really classic um, example of this they did um, some analysis on some aeroplanes that are coming back from uh, World War II the ones that landed I don't know if you've ever seen this and they showed this picture of where they've got all the bullet holes of how and people are saying well they should fix all these holes and it's like no it's like they're the ones that made it back the ones that didn't make it back Uh, that's the bits that you don't see that you need to fix. The fact is that you are seeing less than you would have seen if you weren't wearing masks. And I think that's the bit that people don't see. I also think that in the first lockdown, it was, even if people couldn't see it, just the fear, the fact that we'd went into lockdown made people comply and so when you walked on the streets people distanced from each other and people went out for exercise for one hour and then we had that period in summer I think back about it we went to centre parks um, on holiday for um, five days which now seems completely and utterly insane Mm. and I think it it stopped being real again people started having even with masks there was an intimacy in people's interaction with each other on the streets or in supermarkets Whereas I think suddenly now, because it's coming home, so to speak, because it feels like it's in everybody's schools, it's, you know, there isn't a parent with a child in secondary school who hasn't had their child off for a week because somebody in their class has got it. All those Twitter polls of do you actually know somebody who's had COVID? It's ridiculous. It's now actually, I'd struggle to find somebody who doesn't. And I Hmm. think that does mean that there will be a greater level of compliance now because I think the fear is back and as awful as it is to live with fear we we, if we're going to beat this then we need a little bit of fear we we do need to be fearful because it is fearful that makes that fear that makes people cautious but I also think I also think there is a bit of optimism as well because I think a lot of people are going okay this is going to be like 12 weeks and then you know, people can they can see the way out of it now, whether it's 12 weeks or 24 weeks. Um, and I don't suppose a lot of people have a huge amount of confidence in the timelines. 
that the government are setting. But I do think people are confident it will it will improve. I think it's so interesting, Rebecca, that you talk about optimism. I saw it in the lead up to High Holy Days. I saw it in the, you know, when the news of the vaccine came out. I can't say it. I really struggle really? to see, not for myself, you know, I kind of, yeah. I, but I mean, okay, you know, we're talking generalizations again, but my perception is people are exhausted. They are utterly and utterly, and it's very difficult to be hopeful and optimistic when you're just knackered. So moving this, moving this on, you know, we have four Jews on this call and, uh, that's what five opinions. Well, I was going to say that you know we've we've we all grown up to uh, or expect to hear the negative of certain things, but then we actually also drive through and see the positive. Sarah, how has it come out in where you are in Israel? You know, what's the different view do you see over there? I think there is more optimism, which in, in some ways is a, is a wonderful thing because we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the you know, prime minister came on national television two weeks and and some odd days ago just after Shabbat ended in Israel and he, he rolled up his sleeve and his you know very white arm was there on the camera and his and the the doctor gave him the inoculation and I burst into tears watching this I found it profoundly mm. moving and and I, I um, you know the, the prime minister seemed so vulnerable and so frail and so human as I have felt in the last several months. And it was so deeply touching to me. And I, I would hope plenty of other people said that it was a PR stunt. And I, and I don't disagree. I think there was certainly an element mm. of that. And I think he's, Prime Minister is a very smart man and knows how to stay in power. But at that point, it didn't matter to me. I, you know, I was able to set my own politics aside and just appreciate that he was doing this in a way that would hopefully encourage those who support him and are afraid of the vaccine to go out and get it. And seeing that and then seeing the remarkable way that Israel started rolling out this vaccine was just tremendous. I mean, look, we our post office loses packages <laughs> all the time. I've been on the receiving end of that. <laughs> if, you, if you want to make a bank transfer, you're going to be on hold for four days and Shoshana better be in. But if it's a Tuesday, you're going to have to wait till she comes back because she's the only one who knows the code. But when it came to this, you know, we have over one out of nine, I think something close to one out of eight every Israeli are, are inoculated with the first dose. It's, it's you know, finally something good, you know? I know. Isn't it right if you're a pizza delivery person, you can get the vaccine straight away? It's Yes, it's the kind of thing where if you are out on the street, at the end of the day, when, when Amal or, or Moshe, the, who are administering the vaccines, realize that they have some leftover doses and there are no, there's no one else in line, they go out, they go outside and they start hunting people down and they say do you want the shot do you want the shot and people are getting the shot and so uh, that kind of organized chaos is really it's it's beautiful but on the other hand we are letting our guard down and here I am you know out of breath my oxygen levels somewhere between 90 and 96 during the day and my son described it best of all he said mom it's like 
we're watching a horror movie and you think that the bad guy's dead on the floor. And so everyone turns their backs and they're hugging and, and crying and congratulating each other that they, they beat the bad guy. And then he jumps up with a knife and starts slashing everybody again. So that's what it feels like too on, on the other end of that. So the optimism is great. And I'm every time I see another picture of a friend getting inoculated, it, it fills me with warmth. I have tears in my eyes. But then I also feel this sense of like, well, shoot, couldn't I have just not gotten sick? <laughs> couldn't that be me? And, and, and so it's a combination of a lot of feelings. And I know other Israelis are grappling with all of this as well. But the lockdowns, you know, it's interesting hearing you all discuss the lockdowns and hearing my friends talk about it. The first lockdown was hell. It was because you, there was no end in sight. And I thought that was how it was going to be until there was a vaccine. And the second lockdown felt inevitable. And this third lockdown, I mean, selfishly, I'm not even feeling it because I'm barely getting out of bed anyway. But it doesn't feel so psychologically damaging because we know that the lockdowns end. We know that there is something out there. I, I don't want to say that this is a cure and it's going to eradicate COVID from our midst because we don't know for sure that it's going to do that forever. But we know that there's something that's going to make life better. And, and we're almost there. We just have to be a little patient and kind to each other and to ourselves and responsible. My brother lives in Tel Aviv. Uh, yesterday, um, I was due to teach on on Israel, beginning the is UK Israel conversation with one of our congregations, and it's a congregation that's outside London. And I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous having a brother in Tel Aviv and not having this conversation actually with him, <laughs> rather just a group of Brits having the conversation without. Um, well, I'm an Israeli theoretically, but without a current Israeli living in. Uh, Israel in the in the room and it was interesting hearing him talk about lockdown he's got a 18 month old boy I haven't met because of Covid um, just seen on video call Aww. Asha adorable Asha one of the things that kept coming back and maybe it's the nature of our congregations is that although they are very proud of the fact that Israel seems to be rolling out the vaccine at such speed and really leading the way, can't help but see the articles that are in lots of our Jewish press at the moment and um, in the Anglo Jewish press particularly and in international press there was a thing about border deputies criticising an Observer article today that names that the vaccine hasn't gone to um, occupied territories to Palestinians and I wondered whether that's something that you feel is you talk about you know our lives changing but actually neighbourhoods very near you won't be changing. You're right and I'm really, really glad that you're raising this. And uh, actually, it's uh, it's an issue that I'm living with in my own family. My, my partner is Palestinian. He's from East Jerusalem. He's uh, born originally in the Armenian quarter, but raised in, in Beit Jala and Bethlehem and now on Mount of Olives and just received his Israeli citizenship. But most of his family are West Bank Palestinians or East Jerusalemites who don't have the same basic access to, to many things that, that is such as voting that that Israelis have and 
this is something that we we can't be complacent on even as you know even as we're celebrating the vaccine rollout here in Israel we have to we have to do more as citizens to demand that our neighbors who whose lives are intertwined with ours and whose fate is intertwined with ours be treated the same way we are I mean and this is something that it, I, I don't know how to solve it I wish my Hebrew were better because I would be in in politics and running for Knesset if I could but the the issue of equality is so basic and so important and so easily overlooked. And I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because it's easy to ignore it and not in a malicious way, but just in, in a in a careless way, because what we don't see is something that we often don't seek out. If we don't take the time to face a pretty terrible reality, how are we going to change it? It's a moral stain on Israel. Is this a turning point? I mean, it's always that case with everything uh, about Israel. We always sit there and we feel like we get to a certain journey um, and, you know, you're there and, you know, you're in a wonderful country. You know, I always feel about Israel that like there is 70 plus percent wonderfulness about that country mm-hmm. and it gets to a certain point with some of these things. Do you think this is an opportunity to actually say, do you know what, as you've just said, we have to treat everybody at the same level for this virus to go away in Israel larger or whatever you want to call it. Everybody that is actually interacting on a daily basis has to have the vaccine. I hope it'll be a turning point. I'm not sure it will, especially with elections coming up and with the way politics and uh, political views manifest in this country. What was very promising and quite beautiful is uh, several months ago, there was a, uh, a video put out and uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the organization that put out this video, but it showed all these doctors with their masks on treating COVID patients. And then the, the doctors lowered their masks and, and or, or the camera panned back and you could see that these were women in hijab or uh, th- these were uh, Arab men. And it, it said, you know, we're partners in the, in the fight in for, against COVID, we should be partners, you know, in, in, in general. But Sarah, what's fascinating, I think, as well, is the universality of what you're saying in some ways is that COVID has shown the, dis- the, the as much as we focused on the unity, mm-hmm. it's also exposed the huge disparities in society and right. the huge cracks. Because we've had it here that some of the people who've been on the front line and have been most vulnerable and put themselves in the in those spaces to look after are sick. So, for example, care home workers are coming from a segment of society that aren't treated with equal rights with the rest of society. And that's been pointed out more clearly in COVID than or at least exposed. That doesn't mean it didn't exist Mm. before, but we've seen it in more stark colours than we have ever before. You're absolutely right. And I hope that that continues to be seen, that after we are through this, that we remember and that we are able to build better relationships that are in, in work toward building a stronger basis of equality for everybody. And I, I, that needs to continue, not just as a moral imperative, but also for our health in general. We are healthier when we are, when we take care of one another and when we stop looking at things 
through such narrow lenses and from such a tribal perspective. But when we broaden that out and we realize that my health is your health and your health is her health and her health is his health and we're all in this together in one way or another and need to look out for one another. So moving that on and talking about something that isn't just about this, one of the most unbelievable things that have happened to me in the last year has, has been getting involved in events around the Abrahamic Accords and watching the ambassador to the UK from Israel communicating and doing things with the ambassadors from UAE and from these other countries and Morocco coming in soon. As someone sitting in the epicenter of that, Sarah, did you feel any difference in the world uh, or the in the country when these things started happening? It was very interesting to see. I remember this this woman who um, works at the the Makola, the little grocery store down the street, who votes very right wing and, and and makes no secret of it. But she was just so thrilled about all of this. About oh, finally we will have peace with the Arabs. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, but what about the Palestinians? And so I, you know, I had my own uh, complicated feelings. You know, in, in in general, peace cooperation is a very good thing. But I also think about the people who are living, you know, just a few kilometers over, who are, as we were discussing before, unseen or ignored or mistreated by um, by and large. But the mood in Israel has been very um, optimistic and very supportive of these accords and you know lo- lots of people Israelis are flying off to um, to Dubai Fine. probably undoing years of diplomatic relations in so doing you know once, <laughs> once these, the Emiratis actually meet Israelis it's over oh, I'm kidding I'm kidding but, no, it's, it's um, okay my brother-in-law uh, decided to fly straight over to Dubai for, he was he had got a flight over just before Christmas and spent Christmas in Dubai with his Israeli wife did he have a good time? He showed me the pictures from the top of whatever the tower is. And he's like, he, he, this camera was shaking because he hates heights. And he's, <laughs> and, That's and, problematic. And, and that was it. And, and pictures of him on the beach there and pictures of everything. And some great dives. He looked like he did some great dives. <laughs> awesome. And I love hearing that. And I think it's wonderful. But I also think of it as like a, I don't know, it's, it's like going to the, the duty-free of the Arab world or the Disneyland of the Arab world and... And will this help people, will this help the average Israeli then be more comfortable with getting to know Palestinians or Palestinian citizens of Israel? Because that's one of the biggest problems we have in this country. It's that we don't know each other. We pass each other on the street, but we, we've we never been to each other's homes. And it's not coexistence when you say, oh, yeah, you know, my, my, I, I go to the Arab falafel shop down the street. That's going to an Arab falafel shop down the street. But that's not getting to know the guy who actually runs it and knowing what his life is like and sharing what your life is like. And so a lot of that is fueled by our own fear. I mean, the Second Intifada did terrible things to the to the Israeli Jewish psyche and really made us afraid of, of one another. And so maybe seeing you know, Arab countries in another light through these accords and through future negotiations will help us be less afraid of the people who are living a few towns over and will allow us to, to get to know one another. I mean, that that's that's my hope. It's amazing, though, because the Second Intifada, particularly early in the Second Intifada, I was living in Israel. It did wonders for diaspora relations with Israel. I know that sounds terribly facetious or... Uh, even worse, actually. But it did. I mean, it's it's much easier for 
diaspora Jews to be engaged with Israel when it's um, struggling? Well, it's the victim rather than the aggressor, just to be really simplistic about it. Yes, thank you, Rebecca. That's exactly Mm. it. And (laughs) it's really difficult because we haven't replaced as much as Leo sells these. He's in the midst of it and sees it. I'm not sure that your average UK diaspora Jews that I was talking to in the middle of Gloucester see that as being positive actually they'd much rather see the relationship building that Sarah talked about and haven't somehow found that middle gap between that relationship that existed during the second intifada and now that bridging hasn't happened my feeling about all of this Charlie is that you have to go along a road and if the road is that the first thing you need to do is to go to the Disneyland version of it and meet the Disneyland experience and get comfortable with that and then move it along and along and along do it you're not going to jump from complete we aren't neighbors we don't talk to each other and if you look at somewhere like uh, northern ireland which i've spent a lot of time in ireland when the end of that happened it wasn't like and tomorrow we all celebrate and there's still going to be some things Mm. but it slowly erodes and you slowly start turning around so that things are together and and i think it's going to be interesting for someone particularly sarah where are you now living right now i'm on a moshav near rehovot but looking to move to jerusalem so if anyone knows of any apartments within an affordable range please reach out to me uh we need to move by march 1st i just sit there and go it's going to be the tides are going to wash over and slowly things are going to happen and it won't happen as fast as maybe Mm -hmm. some people would like but it'll happen a damn sight faster than the people who don't want it to happen leo i so agree and something really funny happened a few weeks ago uh these these guys from from kafir kassam which is a an arab town in within the green line near roshain pedaktikva area they got some gorgeous like mercedes benz and and bmws and they dressed up in the long you know costume of the of like the emirati Sheikhs, and they played Emirati music blasting from their their stereos, and they drove through Tel Aviv and Jaffa, and they parked the car, and all these Israelis flooded to them to take selfies, and so line these guys were Israelis never line up, and they were lining up to take pictures with these men who were dressed as Emirati sheikhs. And in the end, they, they admitted to the, the um, Israelis who were waiting in line, listen, like, we're actually your neighbors. We're from 20 minutes away from Kafir Qasim. And everyone had a, had a big laugh about it. But I, I thought, that, wow, that, that's cool, you know? And, and it, it speaks to what we were just talking about. That's a Sasha Baron Cohen sketch, right? Totally. <laughs> totally. But it was such a fun and playful way of drawing attention to this issue of, oh, you're, you know, you're so excited about going to Dubai. You're willing to risk your health and get corona on an airplane to go to Dubai. But you, you've never even been to Kafir Qasim because it's an entire world removed from where you are. Isn't that going to be the thing? It's not just about Israelis going over to Dubai. It's about people from the uae coming back over Mm -hmm. to israel people who weren't coming over and when these people who come over start seeing it and of course they're going to go across the green line no problem and they're going to go and look at the other things and see the other sides and they're going to sit there and go well actually maybe we can actually help with this solution i hope so i always think one of the best and the worst things that israel has is america and america sort of like dominates a lot of the conversations whenever you start talking about it but when you start getting a champion that is in america to start talking about things maybe th- things are going to sound a bit more friendly to other 
nations. It's so funny, Leo, because you go to the like pragmatic kind of way. I The thing that struck me was this is so Brechtian, you know, this idea of like when you laugh, I cry and that I can't see your situation. And so I have to kind of almost stand outside it in order to, to reflect on it. And that's um, maybe the difference in our jobs reflected there. Sarah and you, Charlie, have both lived and breathed Israel that myself and Rebecca never have. So, you know, and you know what it's tough it is to be there. I know what it's like to be, you know, I was reading Sarah like a geek reading up on your articles, but I was really struck in the multiple ways you talk about being insider, outsider, in lots of different ways. And I, I really related to it, both in terms of my relationship to Israel, but also as a mother, as um, writing in all sorts of ways. Um, really, really that sense of the whole identity lies in being both inside and outside almost at the same time. Thank you for, for, for reading that. And that's something that is such a part of who I am. And it took me years to be able to name it and embrace it. I, I call it mermaid syndrome now because I like the image of the mermaid who can move between worlds but never quite belongs to any. And it's really how I've always lived my life. We were the religious family in the uh, in the reform synagogue. You know, our, our rabbi didn't keep kosher, but we did. Um, we grew up in a in an area that was not particularly Jewish. Um, you grew up in LA, is that right? In the, yes, in, in, and in Venice Beach, by the, right by the sea. And then we cool. moved in towards, towards UCLA, towards a, a mm-hmm. little bit inland. And so I, I've never belonged in, to any community because we've always been the odd ones out in the community. And also um, my mother was Jewish. She passed away uh, several years ago. And my father embraced Judaism, but never formally converted. And we, we were always, our family was always a little bit different. And I'm grateful for that because it's allowed me to be in this new place. I mean, I've been in Israel for 10 years, but to take that perspective of having never belonged and be because of that be able to go almost anywhere everywhere yeah, same for you, uh, that is so wow if i if i ever find the answer to that question i think th- then i will have reached a, a level of shlemut of wholeness right. home is in moments home is at the seder table with my family in la home is on the eight hour zoom thanksgiving dinner that we we had uh, during the pandemic home is with a, with a glass of that hazelnut coffee that i i miss so much and sitting with my my partner in the living room in the morning and home is when I'm with my kids and having a dance party or when I'm climbing on the roofs in the old city of Jerusalem or going down into some cistern that I found you know in in the middle of the Muslim quarter that I didn't know existed home is in those moments but there is no one space Mm -hmm. and there's a certain loneliness in that and a certain brokenness but I'm okay with it because it allows me to find these moments of absolute pure undiluted joy in the strangest and most miraculous of places that's really beautiful thank you and thanks for asking the question i've read some of your taxi stories do you want to give us a bit of a background of how you came to start writing these and where you're going with them so israel is dangerous enough and the last thing this country needs is for me to be on the road okay so i don't <laughs> So I decided early on I should not be behind a wheel. And so I started taking taxis here and there and having the most 
wonderful conversations with the drivers, which helped me acclimate into Israel, especially in the first few years when I was feeling so out of place and hadn't yet found the different communities that I connected with here in in the Holy Land. And these taxi drivers were were like special doors and windows into, into Israel and into Palestine too, depending on the driver. And I have so enjoyed hearing such wonderful stories and, and getting glimpses into the lives of so many different people who from all walks of life, secular, religious, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, um, young and old. There are men driving taxis. There are women driving taxis. There are people from all different political persuasions. It's been a very powerful way for me to experience the different facets of Israeli and Palestinian society, of Holy Land society, and to feel these stories unfold and for a few minutes get to be part of the world of each driver. And so I've heard some remarkable tales and it uh, suddenly occurred to me, I've always been writing them down and sharing on Facebook, you know, so much of Israel has been distilled only to the politics of the region, to the stories about the prime minister or or the conflict, capital T, capital C. Um, or startup nation. But what about the human stories, the people who are literally out there on the roads in this place, going back and forth and and ferrying folks from other backgrounds and walks of life all around. And so I started um, expanding on the stories and compiling them. And, and the book is almost done, about 150 pages. It needs some good edits. And I'm still collecting stories as I um, go along, but I'm having a ball with it. I'm having such a good time. And and actually, you know, last year, at, I was at Limud last year, and I, I learned how to say it. It's not Birmingham, as we Americans are wont to say, it's Birmingham. I, my, fr- my friend Tally Kalman gave me a whole pronunciation guide about it. It's Edinburgh, Birmingham. In London, I was saying correctly, so it was fine. Um, I, I read some of the taxi stories out loud to a very nice audience. And so that was uh, my test pilot of whether or not I had an idea. And that was it. So the book, I hope to to finish in the, as soon as I get better, really plow through and, and get it done. It's uh, making me laugh because I spent five years, six years living in Israel and I, I also decided never to drive. In fact, I came back to England. I only passed my driving test when I was nearly 30 and I think it was only because I was eight months pregnant and the uh, driving instructor felt incredibly sorry for me. And he did say to me at the end of my test, he said, um, you know, if I'm passing you, you do know you'll have to get out out of second gear and <laughs> whenever I tell that story it always makes everybody laugh because I'm always notorious now for driving within the speed limit at speed so when I went to Israel I am um, not long after me and the kids dad had, had split up I, I took the kids on my own so three kids under the age of five I guess to Israel on my on my own and wow, my daughter courage. it was insane <laughs> I think I only did it because I was in a moment of kind of insanity at that point and my daughter had fallen off a log a couple of days before we went to Israel and broken her nose and um, so she had two black eyes so you can imagine I was on my own going to Israel on El Al with um, one of my children with two black eyes so El Al assistants thought that you know I, I don't know what they thought we were doing but you know they interfered a lot but we got to Israel and one of my cases that had all the kids stuff so you know two of them were still in nappies at that point wasn't there so it had to go I mean if you've lost a case anywhere but losing a case in Israel it's like 
I mean, just insane. It was like four o'clock in the morning. None of us slept. And then I decided that I was going to drive to my family in Haifa. I I don't know. I I wasn't in my right mind. So I hired a car and it was the first time I'd ever driven in Israel. And not only had I never driven in Israel before, I'd never driven an automatic. And obviously all the cars are automatic. And so I did this journey. I mean, first, the insanity was getting the car seats, getting three car seats into a car in the middle of the night on no sleep, stressing about the fact that I had no nap and no nothing and then driving all the way to Haifa I mean the fact that we made it in one piece is insane but then I went a couple of years later and decided again to drive and I was driving with uh, Richard Bloom another shout out for you I was driving with Richard but there were so many of us we couldn't hire a car in the summer because all the Haredis have the you know the big cars and so we had to get two cars so now we were doing a convoy through it now Richard is notorious for driving ridiculously slowly and so I was following him don't ask me why I was following him rather than him following me but anyway I think it was something to do with going through the wrong tunnels in Haifa and him not trusting me anymore but we were in the desert and I was following him and I got stopped by the police the police stopped me and they said is something wrong I was like no I'm fine they're like what why are you going so slowly what's wrong with you like my favorite story that I, the only time I've ever got stopped by the police was in Israel and for going too slowly. I love it. I love it. That is brilliant. So Sarah, are you aware from Israel that a lot of Israeli drama is now becoming really huge over here? Oh, like, uh, yes, yes, yes. Like Faura and, 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 and Schnitzel. Faura and Schnitzel are, I think, probably the two biggest ones. They're both okay. really popular over I, here. I have a story about that. May I share it? Please do. So a few weeks ago... Uh, I was in the kitchen and boiling water for tea. And I hear this frantic shouting from the living room. Sara, Sara, it's my my boyfriend. Sara, come here. So what's wrong? He said, I can't believe it. It, it, It's coming back. I said, what's wrong? You know, schnitzel, schnitzel is coming back. I said, schnitzel? Yeah, schnitzel. You know the show, schnitzel. I said, oh, schnitzel. Yeah, yeah, schnitzel. It's (laughs) his favorite TV show. He's thrilled. And so, you know, Israel's a place where, you know, the, the Arabs love, love schnitzel and the, and the Jews love fauda. So, yeah, right. That's how I understand it. Yeah, that's how I, I mean, I love both of them. I, Leah, I don't think you've seen them. Charlie, have you seen either or both? I have. And I was also thinking of my dad who loves them. I, I only managed an episode of it because it's much more his humour than mine, which is about an Israeli cop show, like a comedy comic. Oh, um, I know. With, oh, with yes. the dancing of the police at the beginning. I mean, my dad dad particularly is obsessed obsessed this is his like he's he's loving this moment for for being a way of being part of israeli culture without having to leave his couch so so again i'm gonna do that positive you know that i do i go down that road um you are leo since when how did this happen you went from being our old man cynic to being like mr optimistic i look at it the fact that if you introduce people through popular culture and popular media to difficult subjects, you enable people to actually understand, see the other side of it. So a good example of this uh, for in the UK, and I've seen it, is like Derry Girls. Oh, so, I love that show. That's my favourite show. Yeah. That, I'm, okay. I love Derry Girls. Love I did Derry not come Girls. on to a podcast to talk to an Israeli about Derry Girls. Hello, I'm just saying. <laughs> 
I want to talk about Fowder. Actually, I admit that the reason I watched Derry Girls this summer was because of Sarah. Because oh, she was right. talking about it in, on something on Facebook. And I sat there, I'd, I'd like half watched one episode and never got into it. And then you watch this and you go, the, the benign way they treated terrorism incidents in it. Oh, yeah, the bridge is closed. And it's like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. the bridge is closed because there's going to be a bomb. They walk past it. It's like, we'll just walk on the other side away from it. You know, that's it's just very that- Israeli, Leo. It's so yeah. Israeli. Like when I used to work, I used to work at Mike's in the middle of Mike's Place Bar in the middle of Jerusalem, in the middle of the Second Intifada. We used to like, they'd come in and they'd say that there was a pigua, you know, a possible pigua or something. You'd literally, you'd take the tray out of the cash register. We'd grab a couple of kunkan in like the jugs of beer and we'd set up the bar at the end of the street as though nothing had happened and my mum would call me like on this very basic mobile phone and she'd say you know I'm in a radio floor and it'd be like oh yeah I'm just at the end of the road and we're ha-. she's like what are you doing and that that was my existence it was it's very kind of that that's the mentality of living in those reality and I guess when you're living in an extreme situation you have to just adapt I mean I'm not going to compare you know living with Covid and living under terrorism because they're both very different but they're they've both got that element of extremism about it and you just have to kind of get on with and just adapt to it and that's something about human resilience I think but I don't want to get rabbinic that's not my role no I like it Rebecca I came on the podcast feeling fairly negative and non-optimistic and actually I'm kind of finding the cracks of light tonight and uh, appreciating that. I think that's the thing. I mean, I, I genuinely feel that, you know, I, as I said at the beginning of this, that I met Sarah because of COVID, that I got introduced to her world, the things she puts on Facebook, and it's it brightens my day because I read them. Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> this is so beautiful. Well, you just brightened my day. Thank you. And I, I agree that terrorism and COVID are two very different things, but they touch on similar primal feelings within us a sense of a sense of dread and a sense of of fear and helplessness and vulnerability and yet and yet we are an, an insistently thriving people humans in general we're remarkable and 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 that means that we're we let our guard down sometimes and we and we do get sick and and things will happen but it also means that we look for ways to connect and to love and appreciate and um and, and, and make the best out of a, so a bad situation. I refer to that like the ice cream moment. In other words, when you're really ill, you basically are allowed to eat as much ice cream as you can actually eat. And while that probably isn't the best thing, it's like, well, I'm ill. I need some ice cream. Right. Except when I had my tonsils out, I thought that that was what has happened. And they told me, actually, you need to eat crisps because you need to get all the gunk off the back of your tonsils. So maybe that's the formation moment, Leo, in our different approach to things is you're looking for the ice cream to like soothe it. And I'm looking for the conflict and the tension. Bring bring this round. Um, Sarah, how have your kids uh, coped with you over the last eight days with having been not being great they were you know they were exposed to me when when i was pre-symptomatic so they had to go out and, and get tested and their, their results they've been tested twice and they're now out of quarantine because both results thank god were negative but um you know, they're my, my kids are 11 and 12 and you know my daughter's deep into preteen, and my son is oedipus and so it was therefore accordingly to to that that they that they behaved so my daughter when we were still waiting for my results and they didn't know I was actually really sick they were my daughter 
was frustrated that she was still in quarantine because we didn't know what my story was. And my son kept calling to say, how are you? Are you all right? I'm sure you're very beautiful today. Oh, my God, that's my son. How did we have the same child? We joke that he says to me, I'm sorry, mommy. I love you. You're really amazing. <laughs> I love you. Have you adapted online? this last year with the Times of Israel? Uh, the, the, the Times of Israel community and, and, and doing Zoom conversations. And so we've seen people engaged and looking for connection in that way. Our, our readership is, is growing. You know, but Jewish media in general is at a very interesting and, uh, and at times it seems um, a vulnerable place right now with for many reasons, especially the uh, diaspora communities in the United States as they uh, grapple in a, with the relationship with Israel and with, with the politics. And now that Israel has become such a, sad, tragically, such a partisan issue, I, I'm not sure if this is so much the case in the UK, although I got some sense that it was when I was at uh, Limud last year and, and speaking with people I know who are who are British Jews and hearing about their experiences. But in the U- in the U.S., Israel's becoming more and more partisan, and so th- that presents a unique set of challenges. Um, but we're facing them head on, and and people are engaged in the news and uh, and turning to Times of Israel for information. David Horowitz does a, a wonderful job being fair and and accurate, and he's a, a really a, a terrific human being and and a fantastic writer. And I'm not just saying that because I work for him. I work for him because I, I believe this of him. And he's a, a very special human being. What's interesting about all of this is in, in 20 years, 30 years, we can go up to anybody in the world, anyone in the, in the entire world. And as long as we speak their language or can communicate in some way with them and say, where were you during 2020? How did you mm. get through it? Everyone has gone through something in this past year. And it's, yeah, and, and everyone ob- on the planet. Yeah. And obviously we all have had easier times of it or more difficult times of it and have gone through it in our own unique and separate ways, but we can all look to this period as something that we've all endured and, and it's a touchstone for all of us and and for me this is the first time in my life I've had such a, a touchstone I imagine that people who were young um, but cognizant during World War II have that as well but I, I was born a, a few years after that in in 1981 so I missed out on the Vietnam War what am I going to talk about Reagan I mean well, kind of with all, with all to respect, but this is a very powerful moment in time that that the entire world is experiencing in one way or another, yeah. and we can we can it'll I think it'll be a bridge for further conversation and understanding between communities as we move forward because we, we share this it's something really powerful that we share our own and it, it just highlights what is so important that we are human we are fragile we are hopeful people who just want to make it through the day alive. Normally we ask where we can find you i'm right here on the phone with you Uh, yeah where we can find you (laughs) online if i said to you where could you pitch yourself in three months time if you could literally choose anywhere in the world and you've lived in a lot of different places where would you like to be scotland i want to be in scotland i am my alter ego is going to is a is a barmaid who has opened up a a tavern called the tattooed mermaid and it's it's so far north in scotland and i'm sure the weather is just absolutely horrific but it's (laughs) 
yeah, three months is going to still be yeah. crap. <laughs> and th- th- that's where, where I want to be. I, and uh, I really would love to travel there. And it's not just the scotch, although that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And by yes, then, I hope I can taste it and smell it. But um, I, I love the folklore. I've got my family on my father's side comes from Cornwall and then also the very northern Scotland as well. And so I'd um. like to do some family roots tracing and... So you're a Celt. <laughs> On both sides, Cornwall is Celt. I feel like yes. there's this female think tank come bar, come B&B forming somewhere in the world. Every time I have conversations with people, they like they want to open a bar or a B&B or like travel to some remote place and open mm-hmm. something like that. There is something really deep. Um, I've got a my best friend in the world who's currently in New York via Tel Aviv is Natasha Schifrin and um, she is desperate to open a and I mean, amazing thinker and um, but also marketeer come, I mean, amazing, wants to open somewhere. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Judith Rosenberry, who I spoke with on Limud, great theologian lives oh, in the she art. was amazing by the way she is Sorry, amazing. Another, on another podcast we need to have a conversation about her or even with her i mean with <laughs> her is lives on the isle of sky and oh. has a virtual like virtual kind of think synagogue thing called um black shed uh synagogue uh, amazing uh, julie Siddiqui, who i know leo knows as well amazing amazing woman who um every time she brings people onto her um talk show thing called thrive every single one of them talks about opening somewhere so i feel like we we have to make this happen we have to open the tattooed mermaid bnb bar come synagogue synagogue chain of something i'm there i'm so there The most formative job that I had after selling Double Glazing, obviously, um, was... Another episode. Another episode was working at Mike's Place um, in Mm. Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And um, people often say to me, what has being a manager of bars or bartending got to do with being a rabbi? And actually the better question is what hasn't it got to do I would have thought with so. each other people is, so isn't it formative. just about throwing people out at the end of Kiddush okay. <laughs> that's a whole other story that's a whole You've other story enough of the Kiddush wine walk away from Get the Kiddush wine <laughs> well they always at Mike's used to send me out because when you're five foot it's um you look a lot less threatening than sending out a big bouncer to split up fights well, that was their argument anyway quite loud <laughs> So I guess I can imagine you were very effective, Charlie. (laughs) At that point, did you know you wanted to be a rabbi or did that in some way inspire you to to go that course? It's so complex and probably in the amount of time that we have here, Leo will kill me if I give the whole story. But I met in at Mike's place, really, it was Mike's family and a sense of identity and of coming home and of lots of insider, outsider of what it meant to be all of that and yet that to be so wrapped up in being Jewish and um, it made me want to stay and when I came back to the UK I was searching for that again and that's what brought me back into synagogues and looking for a way of creating that sense of identity for other people and just constantly kind of flipping around with what does it what does it mean to be a rabbi and religious and Jewish and identity and how do you bring all those things together so 
I think on one hand, I'd known I wanted to do it from a little kid. On the other hand, I didn't know that that was necessarily the way of doing it. So being a rabbi, being teacher, being storyteller, being creator of places for people to come home to. Psychologist as well, I imagine. Exactly, exactly. But that sense of home, I mean, that's why I guess it makes so much sense to me when I read your pieces. Creating homes for people was always part of my barman or barwomanship and definitely has been part of my rabbinate. That's so wonderful. That resonates with me deeply. Beautifully said. So we've talked about um, your, uh, Sarah, your pieces and various things. Can you uh, tell the people who are listening where they can hear or where they can follow you in the future? Thank you for asking. I uh, I live on Facebook. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that I'm on a Moshav and trying to move to Jerusalem, but the truth is I'm actually an avatar on Facebook and uh, <laughs> I write... I I write a lot there. I also write for Times of Israel and I work there as their new media editor, but blog um, pretty vociferously. And uh, then if you are interested in taxi driver stories, I have a taxi driver stories Facebook page and a taxi driver stories Instagram account with photos and anecdotes that aren't just ones I've experienced, but have been sent to me by people from all around the world. And if you have any stories, uh, remarkable conversations, funny conversations, heartbreaking conversations with a driver behind the wheel, or, you know, even just someone on the street that touch on the the wonderful and human aspects of life, please send it to me. And I would love to, to share it on these various pages and get these wonderful stories out. So that's where I am. I'm on Twitter, but I'm, I don't love Twitter. I, I, I like to ramble on a bit and Twitter cuts me off. So taking the exact opposite there, uh, a person who loves Twitter. Uh, Rebecca, where can people follow you? I don't know if I would say I would love Twitter, but I definitely spend some time on Twitter. So uh, personally, I'm at R. Singerman and I also run the Kingston Liberal Synagogue, which is at Kingston Lib Shul and of course at Jew Know What. Oh, I love those handles. Did you know why? That's brilliant. And Charlie. Actually, no, sorry. Sorry. I correct myself. Rabbi Charlie. Oh, piss off, Leo. (laughs) (laughs) I am Rab Charlie on Twitter and Charlie Beginsky on Facebook. Twitter for more liberal Judaism and thought pieces and Facebook just for lots of pictures of my children and crazy, crazy animals. (laughs) And you can find me, Leo, on Facebook and Twitter, mainly on Facebook over Twitter. Thank you for joining us this week on our conversation. Thank you so much for dragging herself out of her not very well fed. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, the three of you have lifted my spirits and I feel emotionally and psychically a lot better. And so oh, thank you so for good. that. So good to hear. We really hope you make a full recovery really, really soon, Sarah. Thank you. And we will uh, see you all in a couple of weeks time for our next episode of Juno you know What? Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>